0: What's up, guys? Jack here. Man, am I excited to bring you this episode today. Brent Gleason, serial entrepreneur, consultant, coach of high-performance teams, Navy SEAL combat veteran. And he just dropped so much wisdom on how we can bring high-performance, top-flight performance to our own lives, to our profession, to our teams, to our personal relationships. And he gets going from jump. So I'm really excited to bring you this episode, and without further ado, here's Brent Gleason. Hey Brent, how are you, sir?
1: Hey, good. How are you doing today?
0: Life is good. I appreciate you coming on. And you're in San Diego?
1: Yes, sir. Where are you located?
0: Oakland, California. Okay, yeah. About seven hours north. (laughs) Yeah. Do you get to the Bay Area often?
1: uh not surprisingly, not that often i seem to get to everywhere else except for the bay area <laughs> I, I wish i was up there more often
0: and everywhere else is because of what clients or personal or what
1: yeah mostly speaking engagements client consulting things like that so
0: good man and then how is how has uh your business shifted since taking point came out
1: uh, pretty significantly. Uh, and a lot of it's by design though. I mean, the book is written, uh, to be the foundation of a business transformation consulting practice. So we've been building a team around that really, uh, pushing, uh, longer term consulting engagements, uh, more, uh, the speaking side of things kind of, uh, kind of runs itself. We get a lot of inbound leads and speaking requests. So then also trying
0: to build the more scalable side of the business, which is the, the consulting practice. So, And then I saw that you had General Stanley McChrystal as the, as a guy who uh, did a recommendation on the, on the front for the book. Well, that's pretty impressive. <laughs> I don't know if he's a five-star general or a four-star, it. but uh, he also seems like a really great guy. So I was wondering how did you get that?
1: <laughs> it's actually a funny story. I had reached out to, uh, Chris Bustle, uh one of his uh, one of his partners at the McChrystal Group, Familiar, uh, yeah. who also had been his uh, yeah his aide de camp, former SEAL officer, um, and they had <clears throat> essentially co-authored Team of Teams, and then Chris Fossil co-authored with another gentleman that works with them uh, their their follow-on book, One Mission. Yes. Uh, both books very similar uh, approach to modern business structure process culture uh elements drawing a lot of similar ties between special operations communities transformation to um sort of the the you know, the, uh, the dynamics and, and, and disruption of 21st century business and so i reached out to him to see if he'd you know blurb the book and i promote his book and um and you know, he said he's happy to do it, and they got super busy towards the end of the year. Um, uh, and yeah it was harder to get a hold of him. and I, I truth be told, I also there was some motivation there too to also get, get a hold of uh, Stanley uh, to potentially blurb the book. and it just wasn't happening. So I saw how Chris's email was Chris.bustle at the Crystal Group com, So I was like, well, I, Stanley's is probably Stanley.McChrystal. <laughs> McChrystal Group. So I just shot him an email out of the blue. Not only did he respond 10 minutes later, he responded 10 minutes later with a blurb for the book.
0: <laughs> That's impressive. Yeah, he seems like a really good dude.
1: Really good dude, yeah. Really cool. I mean, I had sent him a couple copies of the book. Chances are he hadn't even read it, but just supporting a fellow, you know, Special operations <laughs> soldier. I don't know. Uh, just, yeah. Cool guy.
0: And then your prince, I've read team of teams and one mission. It seems like your principles with taking point could work synergistically with, with what those guys are doing.
1: Yeah, very much. That's why I, uh, their work inspired a lot of, a lot of what I did. And that's why I was reaching out to them because not just because they're obviously military history, but because very similar philosophies.
0: Yeah. So he has the the blurb on the cover and then the guy who does the forward for for taking point is Mark Owen, and over the years, yeah, one
1: of my one of my best friends.
0: Okay, so I've over the years I've read a you know, ton of books on military and special operations. Just you know, I think you guys just there's so much money invested in terms of creating high performance teams and high performance individuals uh, within that. I think it's just a, the right route to take. And uh, I've probably read his book, No Hero. Uh, more than any other uh i just think it's so good <laughs> incredible like really just like you could pop it open to any page and it just uh i mean maybe you could correct me if i'm wrong here but he mentions in there something where he did you know it was something like over 400 missions and after reading that so many times it's, it's just like he had reached the level of mastery where he was able to really simplify like what's important and what wasn't
1: yeah, it, it's uh, he, he's a great guy. We we met uh, when I checked into SEAL Team Five. We were in the same platoon together. He had done one platoon cycle already. Uh, again, this is nine eleven had just kicked off, uh, so everything. Most of the guys were peacetime SEALs, and we checked in. He was the point man in our platoon, and we deployed actually uh, our task unit with another tr- with another platoon. We were the first SEALs in Iraq and uh, deployed out in April two thousand three. Uh, so we did our first uh, first combat tour together. Um, very, very high off tempo. Um, and then when we cycled back, uh, you know, I stayed with SEAL team five and he went on to the development group, uh, selection process called green team and, uh, did the rest of his career there. I think 13 or 14 more combat tours. <laughs> after that. Um, it, once you're on the speeding freight train, it's hard to keep, uh, keep up with guys. Um, and we had kept in touch off and on through the years, and then, uh, unfortunately, we reconnected at uh, Chris Powell's funeral in Dallas, and then have uh, kept in touch ever since. You know, we we travel together with our wives. We I, I actually got ordained and married him and his wife. <laughs> it's a pretty uh, interesting experience.
0: And did you get ordained specifically for that?
1: Yeah, we were in uh, the four of us were in Thailand together, uh, just on a on vacation, and I don't know if it was. the Multiple cocktails or what it was, but but they're like, no, oh, you should. Why don't you marry us? <laughs> of course, I was like, sure, I will. And I uh, did a little research and found out that it's really, really easy. It took me about seven minutes uh, online <laughs> while I was feeding the baby. <laughs> I was literally feeding the baby and just uh, checking boxes on this form. And uh, and my wife was like, really? You 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 popped for the thirty nine dollars certificate? <laughs> I'm like, Yeah, of course I did. <laughs> it's on my wall.
0: And then, w- what do you feel like? you two why you guys connected so well
1: uh we just we have very similar personalities he's just a super uh he he's intense when it comes to work but but uh, super lighthearted, great sense of humor uh he was a mentor to me really at at five um i was a new guy he'd been around for a bit and it just kind of took me under his wing and we just really connected through that and obviously we connected through the you know through the the forged on the battlefield and uh, and, and then, uh, you know, we just get along really well.
0: So. And then you mentioned you guys were the first group to go into Iraq. And I have a question about how did you, did you guys, was there already a level of trust there before you guys, uh, went over there or did it have to develop, you know, cause this is different than training. This is, this is actual combat. How did that trust develop uh, with that group. And the reason I'm asking that is so little context. Uh, when I reached out to you, uh, what I'm doing is I'm trying to play a small part in building a high school football program here in DP Stokeland and the program has not been very good for a long time overall. And we've had a lot of young guys going in this year, but in terms of stepping up, you know, number one way you build leadership is through credibility in, in your craft. Right so a lot of these guys haven't done that yet so my question is did you guys already have kind of a level of trust and did that grow exponentially once you get over once you actually started going through combat or what was that process like
1: yeah absolutely it's a it's a great question i mean the 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 seal training pipeline and then the you know platoon level training pipeline is is designed to to do just that you know you're building high performance teams so when you come into a team after earning your trident you know there's obviously at least a baseline level of trust for the guys coming in because you know that they've been forged uh, in adversity through you know the the pain of seal training they've you know they've earned their right to be there but they've got a long way to go uh <laughs> so there's that element of it um but then usually uh, you know it fluctuates a little bit but usually a platoon cycle will be two years so about 18 months of training and then a six or seven month deployment um so during the during that time that those 18 months of training with your platoon you do build a lot of trust i mean the training is very difficult there's long days um that's kind of the irony of the whole uh, seal training pipeline is the training is essentially harder once you get to a team uh, you know obviously you're not getting beat down by instructors but it's long days long nights you're gone all the time away from your family uh, it, you know, it's a drag, <clears throat> but it is also designed not just to train you in technical skills, but also to bring the team together uh, and, and forge a high-performance team that's ready for anything uh, in combat. And then when, uh, when word that Iraq was spinning up came down the pipeline that we would be going into Iraq, uh, obviously that changed our mindset significantly uh, overnight. Um, but then once you really – you don't really understand uh, – what the team dynamics are or how well you're trained individually and as a team until you're faced with your first real combat situation. Um, Just like we were. And it's, uh, it's pretty fascinating to realize how good the training is because muscle memory kicks in. Guys are moving, shooting, communicating seamlessly. Uh, It's not perfect, obviously, but we debrief everything we do after action reviews. After every single thing we do, we have a very high performance learning culture um, so it that level of trust that you have with each other just expands exponentially um, the more you're tested uh, in, in combat.
0: And when you consult for businesses and you walk into organizations and they hire you to to help to take their organization to a new level and, and create a high performance team, it, it would you recommend that they create specific metrics to that? Okay, this is what we're going to do to create this baseline level of trust or does does that just happen? Uh, I'm I'm wondering is there something specifically we can do to work efficiently to to like okay, now we now we now we've established who who has trust and who doesn't and we can move forward or is it kind of an ever
1: evolving process? It certainly doesn't just happen. Um and I actually wrote an article yesterday for my Forbes column about um You know the top 10 ways to improve employee engagement uh and engagement is a is a huge uh there's a huge aspect of trust that goes into having uh, engaged employees engaged team members on sports team and essentially it's reflective of two things leadership behaviors and consistency in those behaviors assuming those behaviors are positive uh, and the culture of the team and of course ownership over the culture and managing the culture is the responsibility of the leaders and managers within the organization. Uh, And when those two things are misaligned, you're going to have a less engaged team. Uh, Employee engagement is a huge uh, topic, uh, has been for 20 years. There's tons of research, (laughs) tons of people like me writing about it, studying it and having succeeded and failed at it in their own organizations. Um, But we haven't found a way to really perfect it. So we've got New generations coming into the workforce, uh, people trying to figure out millennials, trying to figure out this new generation coming in behind the millennials and and how to motivate them, what motivates them. They're looking for upward mobility. It's not always there. Uh, And oftentimes uh, the culture or even a a transformation of an organizational culture starts with structure. It starts with process. It starts with designing and literally writing down what the culture is supposed to be. Uh, What is the desired culture? What are the desired leadership behaviors from top to bottom, and how can we leverage those to really improve trust, improve communication, and improve the level of engagement um, within the people on the team? And engagement sens- essentially can be defined as kind of in two dimensions. One is someone's emotional connection uh, to, to, to the team, to the organization, to their work, and the level of which they give to their job function. So in a high in a high performance organizational environment, people are very emotionally connected to what they're doing, just like in the special operations community, and they give a hundred percent every single day. You know they're all in all the time, and in most business organizations out there, it's not that's not really the case because oftentimes leaders don't prioritize uh, engagement and measuring and managing trust and measuring and managing accountability, all things that oftentimes get deprioritized over sales and operations and business development strategies, whereas those fundamental elements have a direct impact on efficiency, productivity, and profitability. Uh, And that's oftentimes overlooked because they're harder to measure.
0: And then how do you measure those?
1: There's actually a lot of tools out there these days through surveys, other types of pulse and sentiment tools that organizations can use. Um, Just a lot of companies don't really invest in them or if they do, it's, you know, an annual survey, they look at the data, then they don't really do anything with the data. And that actually is more detrimental to engagement morale, and productivity than doing nothing at all. So if I, as a organizational leader, say, Hey team, you know, we really want to focus on engaging you guys, improving trust for leadership, improving accountability, starting with me, top down, bottom up. We're going to use this tool, that tool. We're going to do some some surveys. We really want to enlist your feedback and how we can improve in these areas. And then we do it. I collect all the data. And then I'm like, cool, this is good information. I put it over on the shelf and say, okay, I'll come up with a plan for that later. <laughs> and then nothing happens. I've seen this, you know, we've made this mistake in the past, not executing quickly enough on those things. We're not communicating to the team what we're going to do uh, based on their feedback to improve. That's another thing. You can actually start implementing these things, but then if you don't communicate it properly to the team that you've heard their their feedback, you're listening to their voice and here's the plan, they just assume you're doing nothing. So that's equally as detrimental. Um, so the usage of these, there, there's, tons of different tools and surveys out there. You can pick the, the best ones for your organization. Um, but the, the critical part, obviously, is, is is follow through.
0: And then, in my circumstance, inner-city high school, the athletes that we're coaching have very low levels of trust just because in their, most of them, for their life, they've been, they've been burned time and time again. So I feel that, as a staff, we need to go above and beyond to to build that layer of baseline trust. And what would you recommend we would do to that? So just off what you would say, I would, I would say we want to have a very clear vision and message that we would want to be repeating daily. Um, what would you add to that?
1: Yeah, no, I mean, that's always a good start is a clear vision that people can emotionally connect to. Clear expectations of, of what you want from the team, from the individuals, so that they can hold themselves accountable to those expectations and it's, it's clear what you, what you need from them. But also, other ways, really great ways to build trust, especially for people who are already naturally lacking in trust for, for other people, is uh, giving, them, uh, giving them autonomy and opportunities to, to, to lead, supporting them in that effort um, being consistent in your own actions, obviously, um, uh, transparent communication, um, but, but also, uh, asking for their feedback, it can be a really, really great trust building mechanism when, when leaders ask the team members, what can I do better to make your job easier? Or how can I help you develop as an athlete? How can I help you develop as a man, as a person? And then follow that with formal or informal mentorship uh, mechanisms. Um, all those things show that you care about them as an individual. And there's a lot of research that shows that people are more engaged. There's a high level of higher level of trust, and this is these are essentially the elements of a high performance team. There's high levels of trust, high levels of transparent communication that flows top down, bottom up, horizontally, um, and all of those things improve engagement. But when you can really prioritize those things. You talk about it a lot as a strategy for the team. We're going to always build trust. We're going to trust each other on and off the battlefield. We're going to communicate with one another. I want you to communicate with me as your leader, as your manager, as your mentor. Um, What can I do better to be a better leader? How can I help you more? All those things over time with consistency, consistently, uh, builds trust. Um, but the problem is, and again, I've Failed at this in the past as a leader, where we talk about it a lot, we start down that path of building trust, communication, and then that one thing, <laughs> that one moment when you make a bad decision or you say the wrong thing, it can just erode that trust almost immediately. So it's really about consistency and behavior. Once you choose a path to how you're going to build that trust with the team and how they're going to build that trust with you, uh, it's just about consistent behavior.
0: So good. I appreciate that. And then what would you recommend in terms of building an emotional connection, which is so valuable.
1: It goes back to what you said. It, it, it goes back to having, having a team mission statement, a vision statement, uh, you know, uh, a culture ethos, really defining who the team is uh, and, and why they exist. What is their mission and purpose? And one one thing I've found With sports teams, is that you know the best coaches, the best leaders, especially for these young men and women out there, uh, it's it's so much more than the game. The game is honestly like oftentimes when they talk to the team, the game is really the last thing they really focus on. They're talking about developing individuals, developing men, women, strong individuals who give back to their community, uh, who are responsible uh culturally sensitive, who are gentlemen, uh, you know, those types of things. And you really focus on those and, and connect people to the fact that this team is so much more about winning games. It's about supporting each other. It's about family. It's about uh, the community, inspiring others. I mean, one of the best ways to, to build great leaders uh, is to teach them how to give back, to teach them how to mentor other people. Uh, in the community, Uh, whether it's through sports or just, uh, you know, big brother, big sister type programs, all those things together will bring a team together more than anything else, at least in my experience. And then you played rugby growing up. Uh, I was a competitive swimmer uh, through high school. And then uh, I was upset with myself for not having played, uh, uh, you know, contact sports. (laughs) So when I got to college, I walked onto the rugby team and, Found a passion for it, and I was the the captain of the team junior year and senior year, and I really loved the game. (laughs) Nine concussions later, (laughs) I don't play anymore.
0: (laughs) And you took and you college in Texas? Did you grow up in Texas? Yes,
1: I I grew up in Dallas, and uh, I I looked at a lot of different schools, but Southern Methodist University, which happens to be in Dallas, obviously, um, just was the the, the best fit for me, so that's where I ended up going.
0: And then, could you tell a little bit about your story of how you exited college and went into business, and then decided that you wanted to to go on a different
1: different path for a little while? Yeah, it is it is kind of a funny story because I really had no serious aspirations for joining the military uh, through high school or most of college. I, I double majored in finance and economics, and wanted to go into the, the business world. Um, <laughs> I was wonderfully brainwashed by school. Um, but I had two close friends. They're actually fraternity brothers of mine. One was my roommate senior year. He was going to, when he graduated, he was going to go to OCS or officer candidacy school, join the Navy and, uh, uh, become an Intel officer. And he, yeah, he grew up in DC. Uh, the military was a uh, a path that made sense for him, um, uh, you know, for somebody who potentially might be groomed for a political career later on. And then I had a another buddy who was a year behind us uh, who wanted to be a seal. That was, you know, he was one of those guys, again, remember, it was peacetime. So this is more of a, a personal challenge <laughs> than it is now. Um, now there's obviously a higher cause, a higher purpose, but he's one of these guys who wanted to be a seal uh, since he was uh, a kid. and cool, a little uh, unrealistic. (laughs) So when I graduated, I was working as a financial analyst, and he was a senior. Uh, We started training together. For me, it was just a way to stay fit, stay in shape, and and also help a friend for a a long, rough journey. So nights and weekends, we would train together. I'd get home from the office around 6. I'd run four miles uh, from my apartment downtown to the SMU swimming pool. We'd swim about a mile, do calisthenics, and I'd run four miles home. Did that Four nights a week. On the weekends, we'd do distance running, usually 10 to 20 miles around White Rock Lake in Dallas. Um, And over time, I just started getting more fascinated with the idea. I was reading some books about it. Um, We were having a lot of dialogue about uh, the history of the SEAL teams, whatnot. So all of that fascination that was building, coupled with the the rather boring nature of my entry-level analyst position <laughs> led to the decision to uh, start living a life without regret and not be that guy saying, Oh, I thought about doing that, but didn't. Uh, so one day I just made the decision, I quit my job and he and I moved up to Crested Butte, Colorado, um, to, uh, to train for another five months, uh, for about five hours a day, uh, kind of doing essentially two a day workouts. <laughs> um, in, in 2000, we, uh, went off to to boot camp and a couple months later was with that butt uh, ready to rock and roll
0: and then what was your process in terms of how hard you were pushing yourself in that training and were you incrementally pushing yourself more and more and how did you get to the point where you recognize that the more i'm put into this the better i feel and the more i get out of it and along with running parallel with that, the more I feel like I'm, I'm on mission and, and doing what I'm, what I'm I'm supposed to do with my life.
1: Yeah, no, it's, it's, that, that's what I love about uh, athletics, about fitness, about wellness is, and, and I mentor guys into the program. I've got a guy who just started first phase um, on Tuesday. <laughs> and been keeping tabs. He's doing well. Uh, he's passed the 50 meter underwater swim. And, um, and, and the thing that I'm always asked, of course, is, <clears throat> well, how do you train physically, but how do you train mentally? Because obviously, skill training is a huge mental game. But there's no real way to train mentally <clears throat> for that environment, because it's going to be a different journey for everybody into how you react from a cognitive perspective to the <laughs> the suck factor of skill of training. The way you do it is by training yourself physically. And... <clears throat> lofty physical goals, and then once you achieve those goals, you move the goalposts again, you train harder, and you train harder, and you train harder. I'm actually working on a concept for my new book, um, which tentative title is Embrace the Suck, and basically it's about uh, that mindset transformation that all athletes go through, all special operators go through, uh, great entrepreneurs go through, and you really start thinking about the reality of the world around you in a different way to achieve those lofty goals. Because if your mindset doesn't align with what you're trying to achieve you'll never get there so for example when i decided to quit my job and start training hard with the navy i was going all in i did not want to do anything else in the military other than become a seal so there was no other option i gave myself no backup plan so i had to go all in so the way to do that was to punish myself (laughs) physically um you know train you know run marathons uh distance swimming and i i I hadn't swam in four years. I was playing rugby, uh, and rugby players aren't distance runners either. So I had to retrain myself, had to swim long distances, had a, uh, had a ride, never been a distance runner. So I was like, well, I need to become a marathon runner. And so I did that. <laughs> so I started doing long swims, long runs. Um, and just literally, we put programs together for ourselves. There wasn't as, as many resources as there are now, i mean the guys now have mentorship programs there's everybody goes to pre-buds for two months which is basically a professional athletic level strength training program that every student goes to before they get to buds. uh it's it's an amazing program um but we didn't have that back then so you had to put your own programs together do the research understand what base level uh, standards you had to pass and not just pass but rush Uh, long story short my goal was to have fitness be the last thing I had to worry about, because there's plenty of other things you're going to be stressing about in BUDS, which is the, the mental factors, the stress, the anxiety, the academics. Um, so why not control the things you can <laughs> and ignore the things you can't do,
0: basically? Yeah, while well, was, I was preparing for this uh, interview with you, I heard, I listened to a podcast that you did with Mark Devine, where you mentioned... David Goggins, and that kind of sent me down on the the David Goggins wormhole. And and he mentioned so, I went to a uh, a interview he did with Mark Devine, I think per your recommendation for you for you to interview with him, and he said that he's. I thought he said something really good that mental toughness is a lifestyle. It's not a class. <laughs> and and this is so. so okay. Go ahead. I was going to say David
1: is a good friend of mine. Uh, we were just talking yesterday. So we were in the same BUDS class together. He had already done two hell weeks and was injured. He His third hell week was <laughs> we class 235, which is our class. Uh, we graduated together. We went to Team 5 together. His new book actually just came out yesterday. It's called You Can't Hurt Me. <laughs> Sounds about right. <laughs> <The guy> has, <laughs> Sounds about yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, the, the guy has a fascinating story. I I actually wrote about it in my book, and his... It, it, that is his philosophy uh, about mental toughness. I mean, again, he's, we won't go into all of it. I mean, people can pick up his book, but you know, he had a very hard lifestyle, uh, you know, a, a, a poverty, abuse, uh, overweight kid. Um, and he found, um, he found redemption by joining the military. <clears throat> he's the only, if not one of the only people who has done the elite army ranger school, the elite air force, um, uh, JTAC school and, uh, become a seal. <laughs> he, and he just, and, and after he became a seal, we went to seal team five and did our first appointments. And he decided he wants to become a ultra marathon runner because being a seal just wasn't enough for him. <laughs> so He literally lives. Uh, he he lives a minimalistic lifestyle. It's nothing flashy. He doesn't care about, uh, he cares about giving back and supporting our, our, you know, our, our fallen warriors and their families. And, um, and active duty warriors through various charities. Um, and that's a lot of why he, he runs and does the various challenges that he does. But, uh, for him, it's all about, it's all about training. It's all about the cause, um, and, and nothing else. Uh, <laughs> he's, he's not, he, he would say this uh, you know, to anybody. He's not exactly a people person. <laughs> he's so focused on what he, what his mission is that nothing will stand in his way uh, of, of achieving it. It's he's, he's a fascinating individual.
0: And then, what he has embraced, and you would say at this point almost mastered, and when you're talking about with your next book of Embrace the Suck. So this is probably the biggest principle or idea that I have the most difficult with with the group at Castlemont, because for many of these guys, their life is very challenging, you know, in terms of a lot of them are in survival mode in terms of making sure they have stuff to eat. And, you know, neighborhood violence going on around them, that this idea of we're, you're going to come here and this idea of, of bra- embracing the suck to because that's going to lead to a, a better life is um, so foreign to them. And I've tried 100, hundred, hundred, and it's going to be a 101st different way today in terms of how to communicate that. In a way of this, this suck is is this is what we're putting on ourselves because there is there is benefit on the other side, and there is no benefit if you if you do not um, do this. And I would love you got a you got a seventeen year old kid in front of you who you know you you show him your book and this is embrace the suck, and he looks at you with like a crazy look on his face, like what you know I don't I don't want to do that. <laughs> what would your communication be to, Hey, I want you to push yourself harder today than you've ever gone. And it's going to suck and it's going to be uncomfortable. And what would, what would your words of wisdom be on that?
1: I I think first off, you know, I've got to be transparent. Like I didn't, you know, I grew up in an upper middle-class family in Highland park in Dallas and went to private school my whole life. And, And I write this in the book description. It's it's not a book about hitting rock bottom or coming from, you know, uh, some awful background and taking that first step out of hell. Uh, I don't have that background. Um, But when you communicate this, and again, I've done a lot of mentoring and some of it with with kids like this, it's really about, it takes time. Like we talked about, it takes time to build that trust. And once you build that trust, they're more likely to listen and really embrace what you're saying. And, and, and take that first step out of hell. Uh, and trust you that this path is their path to freedom. It's their path to new opportunities. It's their path to uh, a better life and, and and moving away from the other negative factors that could drag them down into gang violence or drugs or, uh, or other things, uh, a path that they potentially could never recover from. Uh, There's a lot of guys in 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 the military, uh, even in special operations that I'll tell you that the military in embracing the suck and pushing themselves uh, harder than they ever have uh, for that for that mission. Save their life, literally. And I guarantee you that what you're doing, and I I have the utmost respect and admiration for what you're doing, you're saving lives. And that's that's the way you have to look at it. Uh, You might not necessarily communicate it that way to them. But when you can in other ways, communicate that this, this pain that you're going to choose to embrace (laughs) this, this, this challenge uh, and this path that's going to be uncomfortable will bring you the most fulfillment, the most joy uh, that you've ever had in your life. It'll bring you opportunities that you could never uh, fathom. Just like me taking the the risk and the pain of going through SEAL training and, and combat never would trade that stuff for a million years. I mean, I've, in life, I've seen war-torn countries. I've been to more funerals for friends that I can remember, but I still would never trade those experiences for anything because it made me who I am and it set me on the path that I'm on today. And there's just ways that you can continually—you got to be sensitive, obviously, to their surroundings, to their background, and and be transparent. That you know, you you don't necessarily know, you, you couldn't fathom kind of some of the things that they've endured in their lives as kids. But at the same time you know, trust me, come with me on this journey. I guarantee you it'll be a better path. I guarantee you it'll open up the door to new opportunities. And I guarantee you that it is your path of freedom and happiness and fulfillment. And if you can just continue to impress that message on them and then show them, um, you know, every day, you know, through training and, and mentorship, you know, th- they'll get it and they'll come around. Um, you know, not everybody will, uh, you know, there's no guarantees, but and everybody will react differently to that type of communication. But those that are meant to, uh, to, to transform will.
0: Thank you for that. So you kind of went through this, this transformation, you got into buds and going back to kind of what we talked about in terms of trust at the start of this conversation. Could you tell a little bit, Could you tell the story of the, the leader of your buds group and your team john and um what happened with him and then I, I have a couple questions uh on trust uh after you tell that story if you could
1: yeah yeah It, um uh, you know my class had a a unique experience uh which was a a, a nod that a foreshadowing to what life in the teams could potentially uh mean for all of us uh we were in hell week uh we were several days in but Uh, let me back up and kind of explain how we could starts on a Sunday ends on a Friday and the the beauty of that that Sunday is that the class will report to the classroom with just a couple uh, required items in their possession Um, and by design the class has no idea when Hell Week will commence when breakout starts. Uh, So you're just waiting and waiting and that anguish and anxiety is literally eating away your soul and John was our class leader. So your class leader will be the highest-ranking officer uh, in your training class. And he had been an intel officer at SEAL Team One, um, made the transition into BUDS. Great guy, very well respected within the community already. Um, a great leader, a servant leader. Um, and so one of the ways uh, he uh, motivated us um, throughout that day into the afternoon before breakout was to. Uh, read to us the St. Christmas Day speech uh, from William Shakespeare's Henry V. And I read about this in the book, you know, those that, those fame lines say, we few, we happy few, we band of brothers, for he today that sheds his blood with me shall be my brother. And those men afraid to go will think themselves as lesser men as they hear of how we fought and died together. And then John literally passed away four days later. And long story short, we were in the pool and he suffered a massive heart uh, heart failure, uh, drowned in the pool. And, you know, the uh, the commanding officer of BUDS was addressing the class a couple hours later. Um, he, and I, I don't remember his exact words, but he talked a lot about the notion of trust and the importance of trust uh, in the teams and in combat. And this was, again, pre-9-11. Um, and then the weird foreshadowing of it was him talking about the importance of trust and, and getting used to the fact that we probably will lose teammates during our career in, in the teams. And then literally four months later was 9-11, where we all knew we'd be going to war. Um, so it was just a, a, a very unfortunate but realistic um, sort of entree into uh, the reality of the job that we'd be doing and the you know the the experiences we'd have uh, in the teams, so.
0: And then, what were some of the things that John did to to earn that trust? And you said he already had respect within the community as a as a leader and a, and as an officer.
1: He was just he was just a, a good mix of of uh, strong, uh, articulate, smart, uh, but also just laid back, nice, smiled a lot, uh, remembered people's names. Uh, you know, when you start budget class, it's like couple hundred guys, <laughs> so, but really taking the time to learn people's names, to talk to people, not just the other officers. Um, and he really just almost organically built a great culture uh, within the class, which is hard to do because people are coming and going uh, You know, from the class as people quit. And it's very difficult to maintain a strong, cohesive culture within the group because boat crews are changing almost daily, (laughs) like droves of guys are quitting every day. And uh, he just had a way of keeping people motivated uh, and inspired because of his positive mental attitude. It was infectious. Um, Again, a lot of times these leadership behaviors, it's not rocket science, it's just about uh, being authentic uh, and and, and being that servant leader and putting uh, the team's needs before your own uh, and doing it a little bit every single day. And when people see you do that, uh, they are more likely to embody similar behaviors. And then you start building a culture around that.
0: And then when you were sitting in that classroom, you you tell the story in the book where the instructors come in and and they say what happened that, you know, you guys obviously was in the middle of hell week. So you guys didn't have any sleep. So your brain's already going to be wired to... Uh be thinking very negatively. So I know immediately a lot of that immediate flash is going to be like, you know, F this. And then you talk about what the instructors do to, to keep that trust. And, you know, in terms of this is what you guys are signing up for, but at the same time, it sounds like they did it in a way that, that kept you guys uh, trusting the process. Can you talk about what they did to keep you guys engaged in terms of trusting the process and, this is why we're here and this is a sacrifice that, that may, you know, happen.
1: Well, there's kind of, there's kind of two parts to that. Uh, (laughs) We were, it was Thursday of hell week. Um, And so they had to secure us early because there was a death in the class. Um, So we didn't go all the way to Friday, which carried with us throughout the rest of buds. So they literally, every Phase of instructors beat the hell out of us uh, throughout the rest of us because we were the class that didn't quote unquote finish hell week, Um, which is still talked about today uh, and not in a positive light. Um, It was reactive. It was immature. um, uh, It wasn't a great way to train a class. Um, Obviously, we're all stronger for it, I guess. Um, But obviously, there were you know there were not all the instructors were like that. There were others that great mentors, um, the proctors of the class, uh, keeping us motivated, keeping us inspired. Um, and then especially you know, once my class, you know, we started with over 223 of us graduated. Uh, then we went on to, uh, then you go on to seal qualification training, the advanced portion of training. Um, and literally two days before my class started SQT was nine eleven, Um, so that was, uh, did the beginning of uh, almost what is now a constant transformation uh, in the special operations community and the military, uh, you know, worldwide. And, uh, it was interesting the way the instructors reacted to that while we were in, uh, in SQT, because not, not, not that the training would be different, but it was real now. Uh, everybody knew that, you know, we'd be going down range. Everybody wanted to take the fight to the enemy. And everybody just, it, 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 again, it was a total mindset transformation. Uh, because everything was going to mean something totally different uh, than it would during peacetime, where you're just like, okay, well, we're training to train, and, and readiness is number one priority, but nothing's going on. <laughs> so it was, uh, it it just became real overnight uh, for everybody uh, all over the world, uh, but especially those who were, you know, going to be going into harm's way. So,
0: and then during buds and training and kind of throughout your career did you do you feel like you played a specific role uh, within the team not necessarily in terms of tactically but in terms of personality or characteristics in terms of you know attitude or or you know guy who kept things light or guy who dialed things in and got things serious did you did you feel like you had a particular kind of role that you kind of got in a groove
1: with yeah I I suppose so I mean I would I would ask others what their, what their perception of my role uh, was, but um, it's a little bit of both. One of the fascinating things about the dynamics of, you know, in the SEAL teams is, you know, guys have the, everybody comes from very diverse backgrounds. Guys have their own unique personalities, but you know, some are serious, some are goofy, um, some are macho, some are not at all. Uh, But when it's time to work, I mean, it is like flipping a switch. It's, it's really an interesting thing to see, whether it's, you know, on the shooting range for a day of training or in the kill house or on the battlefield. When it's time to work, everybody becomes a different person and not in a bad way, in a, in a positive way. Every everybody is locked on 100 percent, 100 percent professional. And you just see that cohesive team dynamic. uh come, come into play immediately, uh, when everybody knows it's time to get back to work. Um, and then, you know, when it's, when the mission's over, when the day's over, you see people kind of loosen up a little bit, but it's, it's that path, that training path and that cycle of constant training, it creates those behaviors, um, in individuals. Um, but yeah, I mean, I just like everybody else, I think I brought, you know, my own unique personality and background uh, to the team, um, I enlisted, uh, but was you know, respected by the officers because I, you know, like a lot of guys, I'd gone to college and was a finance major and worked at corporate America, um, which is a, a commonality today. About seventy percent of our enlisted deals have undergrad degrees because guys are choosing, like I did, to enlist as opposed to go to OCS because it's a faster path <laughs> to get to BUD. The, the guys who want to go want to go now. <laughs> and that's how I, I tell a lot of guys I mentor. I'm like, just come, slow down. <laughs> you know, finish college. I recommend it, um, or, or whatever you know, whatever it is you're doing. Uh, the, the teams will be there for you, but um, it's just that mindset the guys have even before getting into the teams. They want to go. They want to go now, um, and they want to serve in that capacity. Um, so that's one of the interesting thing things that's unique about each guy in the teams, regardless of their backgrounds uh, culturally. Financially, education-wise, uh, where they come from is that, and we've done a lot of research in trying to understand the physical and, and mental, cognitive makeup of students that are more likely to graduate. Because we're trying to get more guys through training without lowering the standards. Obviously, if anything, the standards are the same or or more intense uh, from the from an expectation level. Um, but one of the one of the less measurable but common data points that we found is that deep, deep passion to serve at that level. Uh, not just serve in the military, but serve as a SEAL, as a special operator. Um, obviously, other things around grit and resilience are, are important, but it's that passion to serve that everybody has, regardless of their background. It's it's, um, it's really interesting cultural dynamic.
0: And then let's say there's a, a business that, that listens to this podcast, and they reach out to you about coming in as a consultant and said you know I listened to your interview on the Operation Gripbox podcast and the number one outcome that I want your team to bring to my organization is to help us be able to to do more of flipping that switch and be completely engaged and completely locked in when our, our people at work what what are some of the things that you would you would do or discuss or or brainstorm about to to get people to take because I mean for most businesses and most organizations just overall that's, that's not what happens right there's there's, yeah. there's not that okay 100% engaged all dialed in all focused and then when it's time when the when it's time for the day to end shut down complete and and I'm and I'm, and I'm chilling out but what would you say to that and what were, immediately what comes to your head on, on what are some things that you would do to to uh, Help that business and its employees flip the switch?
1: Well, kind of going back to what we were talking about earlier, not to overuse this term, but we're talking about engagement, employee engagement. And it starts first with understanding what that means and its impact on productivity and growth and profitability for an organization. Uh, it has a direct positive impact. When you can move the needle on improving the level of engagement of as many people as possible in the organization, you will have. A high performance organization an organization that generates growth generates positive financial returns uh has higher levels of customer satisfaction higher levels of employee retention and it really starts with leaders in the organization helping them understand what engagement means to them not just people giving more on their job but you know what are we trying to achieve by increasing engagement let's let's first start with the end in mind and work backwards the next is um to make Increasing engagement part of the business strategy, not something that's outsourced to HR, not something that we just hope kind of happens naturally, but make it part of the strategy, make it a a topic in management meetings, Uh, put training around it so that managers and leaders know how to better engage their teams. Uh, And the next is, um, like we talked about before, selecting the appropriate tools for measuring uh, levels of engagement, uh, using that data to actually make decisions on how to improve. Um, Uh, Invest in leadership development programs, like I kind of alluded to a second ago, so that the leaders and managers in the organization understand how to connect with the team, how to, uh, you know, what mechanisms they can put in place, such as uh, investing in their team members' personal and professional development, um, uh, giving them opportunities for upward mobility within the organization, um, and, of course, ensuring that those leaders... uh, on the feedback they act on the data they act on the feedback from the team which again like we talked about earlier today builds trust um, you know really setting uh, engagement goals milestones KPIs so that you can measure it you can kind of uh, see the path to what that will look like but at the end of the day you know it's not so much about worrying about you know more positive results on your engagement surveys it's about improving employee retention including improving, improving morale Building a great culture, uh, improving customer satisfaction, customer retention, growth, profitability—those are obviously the goals. Um, and also, but also creating a great place to work uh, where people are happy and excited to come in every single day. Um, and when they're not, you have a, a you know a more disengaged workforce, and it's much much harder to grow, to transform, to retain customers. So that's the most important thing that I tell clients is re- remember the end goal, not just. You know, Looking at your engagement surveys and you're seeing some, some upward uh, trajectory and, and, and positive results, great, but is that really transforming the business in a positive way?
0: And uh, I heard you mention in an interview that you've done some work with the an NBA franchise, Toronto Raptors. What are some things that you did to Im- improve the culture of uh, that organization? <laughs> I
1: know, it obviously didn't work very well. <laughs> <laughs>
0: It was it was it was
1: a great experience. I connected with them through uh, former head coach Dwayne Casey because he had been you know with the Dallas Mavericks, and I grew up in Dallas, uh, so we connected via a mutual uh, Dallas connection. And they were about to start their season. This is a few years ago, um, so I did some talks with them. Spent a couple of days with them at the training camp, um, but kind of similar to what you know you were mentioning earlier. I also had to remind myself that you know this isn't this isn't a, a corporate organization. These are young guys. I mean, the, the team was very young uh, when I was working with them. The oldest guy was 26 hmm. the youngest guy being 18. Um, from, again, also uh, very diverse backgrounds um, uh, educationally, uh, from, you know, some, some coming from poverty and whatnot. Uh, and it was, I had to really kind of change my approach and how I communicated uh, with them and what I communicated and, really, you know, also just keeping it simple, uh, keeping it focused on team orientation, team ability, discipline, accountability, um, you know, leading by example, all, the, all of these sort of simple but not easy uh, philosophies that are part of every high-performing organization. Um, and uh, it, it was great. It was a great experience. I mean, <laughs> you're always it, – it's funny because their use uh, really – uh, showed, uh, when we did some Q and A after one of my presentations. And the first, the first, uh, question was, how many people have you killed? And the second question was, <laughs> have you been shot? <laughs> and I was like, uh, okay, next question. And the second question was, how many times have you been shot? <laughs> like none, <laughs> which is the goal. Uh, it was just, you know, it's, it's, and that, you know, that also, uh, that was early on in our sort of engagement with them. And that was kind of, a um, eye opening to realize that I needed to kind of think about how I approached working with them. Um, but uh, it was, you know, it was an awesome experience.
0: And then what adjusted? Cause it sounded like, okay, you, you probably put in all this preparation to do this presentation and then, and you recognize that obviously it didn't completely connect with your, with your audience. Cause that was the feedback. What, and you, you said you adjusted in terms of, of simplifying and, and, and yeah, and bringing it team. back to the
1: basics, really, uh, which is good for any any team, any organization, that bringing it back to the basics—the basics of of individual accountability, uh, of leading by example, of, of discipline, um, uh, communication—you um, know, putting the team's need before your own—all uh, these things that are you know just important for life in general. They relate to a team, a business organization, a family dynamic. Um, bringing it back to that stuff uh, was was really important to, to, to better connect with them. Um, and, and it, you know, based on that adjustment, it worked, it worked well.
0: And then keeping with this
1: theme of, of individual accountability
0: and team over self, uh, I would love for you to talk a little bit about in the teams in terms of training, uh, this idea of top five, bottom five. What is, what is that?
1: Uh, simply put, we, we, uh, in SEAL training, we weigh heavily, uh, the feedback, which, which again is part of our, one of the cultural rituals. It starts to instill, uh, personal and team level accountability and holding yourself and others to the highest level of standard. It's almost a, a basically positive peer pressure <laughs> in a way, but essentially it's anonymous peer reviews. We, we do peer reviews, uh, almost on a weekly basis in uh, BUDS and advanced training, and the instructors really, they they weigh that feedback and, and data uh, against their own evaluations of students and use it to decide whether or not to, to keep students or not. Um, but the interesting thing, so the top five, bottom five is you're essentially ranking you know with who you believe the top uh, performers are in the class and who you believe the bottom performers are in the class. And you never find out who the tops are because <laughs> that would be positive reinforcement, and uh, we don't do that in field training. We, we, we only hone in on negative reinforcement <laughs> because if you can't handle that, then you probably shouldn't be in the teams. Um, so they, you know, they, they're transparent about who's landing in the bottom five. Um, and it's out there for everyone to see. Uh, for some, it's a very significant motivator to never, ever, ever uh, land at the bottom five again, and then it promotes them to, to a lot of self-reflection uh, and communicating with their team members on, you know, you know, thank you for this feedback, and uh, I'm going to work hard on improving. After uh, others, it's, it's the end of the road. Um, but, it, it, again, it cr- it starts creating that muscle memory of accountability, uh, and, and mostly personal accountability, because the guys landing at the bottom of the list, it's not because they're a slower runner or they're not the best shooter in the kill house or the fastest swimmer. It's usually ego problems, communication issues, their moral compass is off. They're not there for the right reasons. Uh, they don't put the team before self. Those are the reasons guys land in the bottom five, essentially people you don't trust or wouldn't want to be standing next to in a gunfight. Um, and, and that's why that process is, is so valuable is because the students get to review one another, which I always promote in any organization. I believe heavily in anonymous 360 reviews, especially for leaders. Uh, I've done it for myself and organizations. Uh, it's one of the most powerful and one, if not only ways to get better. I mean, self self evaluation is not, <laughs> it's not a good way to evaluate yourself as a leader Ask the people who you are leading and your peers. How am I doing? How can I get better? And encourage that transparent feedback. and And that's really how you build trust. Uh, that's another way you build trust, kind of like we were talking about earlier, how to build trust with you know the guys on the team and these these kids who naturally are coming in with low levels of trust for others. But when you can allow them to evaluate you as their leader or you as their coach or whatever the dynamic is, whatever kind of team we're talking about, and then you act on their feedback, assuming it's valuable feedback, and you act on it consistently and improve. I mean, it's, it's the most powerful way to, to build trust with it.
0: And then I'd love to get your take on the military. Obviously, they view, or let's just maybe just talk about your experience with SEAL teams, that um, negative reinforcement is kind of the leadership strategy. And there's been all kinds of you know research <laughs> in terms of coaching and parenting over the last decade in terms of this idea of five to one. You want to have five positive interactions to one negative, and uh, for I just from your words, I, it sounds like seal instructors do not abide by that. And I'm wondering what uh, what is what is their reasoning Obviously, there's reasoning behind why they do this. I'm wondering what is their reasoning behind that, and, and why is it effective? So, I, I mean, keep in mind, I'm kind of joking when I talk about negative
1: versus positive reinforcement, but. But in the in the early stages of SEAL training, so in the first phase, uh, you know, BUD is the first six months. There's three phases. First phase is what they call physical training. It's where they weed everybody out. Mm. So you'll have three weeks leading up to Hell Week, then you have Hell Week. And after Hell Week, you pretty much have the class more or less that you'll graduate with. They'll, you know, some guys will get injured after that. Some guys will be performance rolled to another class or dropped completely. But more or less, you have the core of your class. But up until that point, they are the instructors are trying to get you to quit they're telling you this is not for you they're telling you that you're the worst officer they've ever seen they're telling you that you will not be a good operator they don't trust you they don't want to go to war with you Uh, it's a mental game at that point but the the point is it's an act they don't really feel that way but it's an act they're trained to do that because if you fall for that bullshit I mean, come on, you know, you you, <laughs> you you won't make it through, you know, the more complex uh, elements, uh, especially the mental aspects of of the training pipeline. Now, after that, um, obviously, the instructors are still coming down on you. They're still beating you because they're trying to forge you know, warriors. Uh, and and you don't forge warriors by overcoddling them. Again, it, this, this doesn't translate perfectly in the civilian world. It's not the civilian world. Uh, It takes 18 months and costs about $3 million to to acquire one seal. It's a very, very expensive and specific process that has been forged over decades of training, decades of combat research, um, and that's how we do it. Uh, Once you graduate BUDS, you get into um, advanced training. It's definitely much more positive reinforcement, a lot more emphasis on learning, a lot of academics. It's basically like getting a master's degree in special operations. Um, and, And that's when you see a a shift in the dynamic of how the instructors treat the students. But up until that point, their, their job is to weed out the people not committed to the mission of becoming a SEAL. Those people who have such a deep passion to serve that nothing can transform them. Nothing can change their mindset. I mean, by the time you're in third phase of buds, you're so strong, you're so fit, you're so committed, you know, you're going to graduate most likely the instructors will, you know, the class screws up. They show up late to an evolution. The instructors will beat the hell out of you. You know, hundreds of burpees and push ups and getting wet and sandy and all. You, it's it's so cool. You just see guys laughing. Guys are like hoo ya, beat me more. <laughs> you can't hurt me at all. Just like David Goggins book, you can't hurt me. And it's it's and the instructors kind of love it because they know the class is strong. They know they can't hurt the class. They can't get guys to quit no matter what they do to them. But it's that process that got the students to that level. Um, and it's and, and by design.
0: And that's something that David Goggins talks about consists, consistently is building calluses in the brain. Yep. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, I, I don't know how better to put it. <laughs> I should have just said that. <laughs> and then this idea of a high-performance learning culture. So this is something that's very uh, near and dear to me. So I was uh, beyond terrible student growing up middle school high school just no interest whatsoever and there had to be uh, there's a variety of different things of of things and experiences that happen in my life that realized that oh learning is a good thing and uh, you know i want to learn and i want to learn as much as i can and then i'm a father of two boys and this is something that i'm constantly watching with them in terms of their educational environment and also, when I look at my the guys at Castlemont, where there's just the same, ways of, you know, I can't stand school. It's it's, it's not interesting, and there's, I'm not getting anything out of it. And I'm wondering what it, what are the, is there anything other than, you know, you want to push yourself as much as you can, and this this idea of the mission's bigger than us. But is there anything other that other than that that the seals did to really get you guys to embrace learning in this this high-performance learning culture? Yeah, I
1: I was kind of smiling when you were saying that because all through high school, even most of college, I really was not all that academically inclined. My grades were fine, but I definitely did not prioritize academics, I did not prioritize school, I didn't really care for it that much. And to be honest, I was kind of derelict in high school. (laughs) Even though I I went to an all-boys Catholic school, uh, which which means nothing i mean parents sometimes assume well, private school is that a public school it, 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 it hmm. makes no difference on how the person's going to turn out or how they'll behave in different environments um you know my my oldest son we have three children uh, 12 4 and 2 and my oldest is uh you know he's 12 he's just entered seventh grade he does not like school <laughs> he, he, you know, we have to really really push him and encourage him i was taking him Uh, the other day, it was first day of seventh grade. And I'm like, so what are your goals this year? He's like, my first goal is to continue to hate school. (laughs) My second goal is to, and then here's the irony. His second goal is to, uh, to bring his grades up to a consistent 3.5 GPA. I was like, (laughs) so let me stop you right there. (laughs) You will not achieve that goal with the mindset of the first goal, (laughs) because if you have the mindset that you hate school, you're not going to, Give it everything you've got to achieve that three point five or over GPA. It's all about your mindset, um, and that's the same thing they do, obviously, in SEAL training and the best sports teams out there. Um, and and, and uh, actually, I was just doing some work with uh, the Minnesota University of Minnesota football team, the Gophers, and their head coach PJ Black. Ironically, I, I we met him and his wife and. Cabo just sitting by the pool um, uh, a couple years ago and so he brought me out to speak with the team help run practice um, and I'm, I'm now mentoring a couple of their uh, of their players uh, one of, one of whom wants to graduate and try for the seal program um, but what I love about his coaching style and creating that learning culture goes back to what we were talking about earlier is making it about making it about so much more than, than the game uh, you know you're forging young men gentlemen academics um, and, you know, he, he makes them create vision boards for their life, for their goals that have nothing to do with football. Uh, I mean, obviously some of them want to play in the NFL and that's great, but you know, it's, I mean, they'll, what every, I mean, every graduating class and, you know, from a team like that, you might get like two or three guys who go into the NFL or make it into the NFL. Um, but he makes it about more than the game. And he does, he does a really, really good job of creating uh, a learning culture. Like in the SEAL program. No, it's very, very academically uh, focused. I mean, you're, you're, like I said, you're essentially getting a master's degree in special operations. Officers have to make 90% and above on all tests, starting in BUDS all the way through SQT. Uh, enlisted students have to make 80% or above on all tests. You can be dropped for um, underperforming academically. Uh, they take that very seriously because you have to learn this stuff. And that's, the, that's the thing about, you know, in high school, you're like, oh, this doesn't matter. and Even in college, oh I'm not going to remember any of this shit anymore. When you're doing something that matters, you have to learn it. It will save your life and others' lives on the battlefield. So you can't not learn it. <laughs> so it it's, one, it's by force, because you'll just get dropped uh, if you don't make the grade, if you don't study, if you don't learn this stuff. Um, but two, it goes back to kind of that level of positive peer pressure. Because if your classmates know that you're not studying, if your classmates know that you're, you're, you're not prepared, uh, whether it's in class, in training, or on the battlefield, they're not going to want to be around you (laughs) because these are things you have to know. Um, so if you can really take the approach that these are, these are things you have to know, uh, we have a very dynamic learning culture based on creativity, innovation, uh, and really incorporate those things into the culture of the team or of the organization. Then when it becomes part of the culture, people embrace it. People behave that way. Uh, people have that mindset that learning is, is a number one priority.
0: And then a lot of what the so I feel like I can say this I have, I have a background in, in adult education so a lot of what the school system teaches is not really stuff that we necessarily have to know so what I communicate to to my players is hey this is uh, you doing well in skill is is and you doing well in school is a valuable skill because it's showing that you have the ability to to do something whether you feel like it or not. And with your son, what are what are some of the things that you're doing to to get him to shift his mindset?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean it's it's a good uh, it's a good question. I mean, a lot of it's just making sure that I make time every day to sit down and, and work with him. Not you know not coddle him, but sit down and and uh, coach him through some of his assignments. Uh, not give him the answers, but help him understand the question, help him understand the goals of the project, help him uh, with his thinking process, help him with his learning process, with his information retention ability, um, and just showing him that I, that I care uh, about, uh, about his um, approach to academics and to learning and you know, he's not that different than most kids. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Everybody's like, rah, rah, school is awesome. Uh, now he'd rather be playing football or playing Fortnite. Don't get me started on that game. I'm sure you've heard of it. <laughs> um, <laughs> I didn't see him all summer. Mm-hmm. He's just playing Fortnite all day long. But uh, just showing him that we care, but also holding him accountable uh, to making the grade, holding him accountable to doing his best work. If, if I come and check homework and... His writing's sloppy. Things are misspelled. He's clearly giving mediocre effort. I make him do it all over again. And, you know, it's it's, it's kind of like they, they, they teach you in training in the SEAL teams. You start with the basics. You get the simple things right. Attention to detail. If you can't do that, we're not going to entrust you with the complexities of being a special operator. So learn how to make your bed. Just like, just like the Craven's book, Make Your Bet. It's such a simple but awesome philosophy for life is attention to detail and getting the little things right. And, and obviously that continues to build over time and you have that approach to everything you do.
0: And how do you, how would you communicate this idea of embracing the suck to him? Have you guys had that conversation or how often is that? Is something
1: or... <laughs> his response would be like, ah, uh, no. <laughs> 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 I, it's a work in progress, my friend. I'm of like, course, hey Tyler, yeah, yeah. Hey am like, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna go in the garage and work out. You want to come? He's like,
2: mm, nah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, okay. Uh, I haven't figured it out yet. I'll just be honest with you. <laughs> I'm working on it. <laughs> it's just it, you know, it's just trying to consistently you know push him. But it's just, it, it it's his nature. You know, God love him, but it's his nature to kind of take the easier path. You know, he's more inclined to want to skip football practice than to go crush football practice. He's more inclined to do the bare minimum on his homework than to go all in. Uh, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's it's just kind of part of his personality right now. Um, and that's, yeah, I, I can't really remember, but, you know, I was probably kind of that way too. Um, but this, you know, just and I tell people this, the guys that I mentor, and I write about this too, but, you know, things like grit, resilience, Bouncing back from adversity, pushing yourself, self discipline. I don't believe that people are just born with it, and others aren't. Mm-hmm. These are these are elements uh, uh, that you have to work on, that you can practice, that you can improve upon. It's kind of the philosophy of the new book I'm working on, "Embrace the Suck." It's I hate the term self help guide, but it's sort of if you had to choose a genre, it's really about you know getting out of your own way, getting off your ass setting goals, and execute. And it's, 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 it seems so simple and self-evident, but you know, people ask me, well, how, you know, how do you have grit? Do you not have grit? How do you get it? It's a discipline that you practice by setting goals, pushing yourself to achieve those goals, and then the next time you set a loftier goal, push yourself, you achieve that goal. It's really the whole concept of the book and a lot of my own philosophy, similar to David Goggins' is, is push, always pushing the boundaries of your comfort zone every single day, every chance you get. Like David says, he says, (laughs) this is how he says it is, do something that sucks every day. And it's the same philosophy that I have, is push the boundaries of your comfort zone, whether it's having that difficult conversation with a colleague, with a customer, with your spouse. Um, You're gonna go run three miles, run five. You know, you don't feel like going to the gym, go to the gym. Like when have you ever, this is just a, a simple analogy, when have you ever regretted going to the gym on a day you didn't want to go to the gym. Never. Hmm. Never, ever, ever. So it's it's kind of working with the end in mind. It like, you know, it's you know, I love Tecumseh's death song poem because it's a metaphor for life. So essentially, what is the list of regrets that you don't want to have when you're on your deathbed? Think about it from that perspective and design your life around not having those regrets. That's kind of a similar philosophy of why I decided to take the risk and put myself to the pain of becoming a SEAL is because I didn't want to be that guy that said, "Oh, yeah, I kind of thought about that, but but I didn't because it was going to be too hard, or didn't think I would make it." It's 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 just a an, uh, simple analogy, but you know, if we think about our lives in that way, whether it's in sports, personal life, professional life, marriage, raising kids, and you can think about it from the perspective of not having any regrets. Then you're going to live a more fulfilling, purpose-driven life.
0: Yeah, and that's that's why I call my company operation grit boxes you know i'm going to i'm trying to get as many amazing minds like yourself to to show this is how we get to high performance and i'm, I'm i sell products that you know these are these are products that can give you this extra edge whether it's supplements or gears you know that can make you feel good look good to be at your best but i can't give you a a box with grit in it i can't give myself you know some magic pill that has grit in it that's something that needs to be forged through through suffering daily, and then also I just took a note here on when you were talking about with your with your son in that process uh something that i've that of course we all go through as dads, and then you know my boys are nine and almost seven, and uh Bob Rotella is he's one of the top performance coaches in the world. He he mostly focuses on like golf and tennis, but what he has his athletes do is he has, he has them do an exercise where it's, I want you to imagine that all of your, your goals you've achieved, you know, you've won the masters, you've done all this, you know, you've you've made a certain amount of money. You've gotten to this level under par consistently. All that's going to happen. All that's going to work out. And all you got to do is just focus on putting in the work every day. And that sounds like a cool exercise to do with, with athletes. But I, t- I took that more as like a personal exercise to do as a dad yep. of like, okay, this is all going to work out. I'm just going to focus on, <laughs> I'm just going to focus on my process and what I think is right today for him. And everything's going to work out. Hopefully, God will. you know,
1: no, you're right. It's it's about it's about envisioning the win. Uh, all great athletes do it. Special operators do it before every mission, uh, or even guys who who are uh, the most likely to successfully navigate SEAL training. They envision the win. There is nothing else other than earning your Trident and then and then becoming an operator or going to the tier one level. The um, same thing with with the greatest athletes out there. They they visualize achieving those goals and once you have that vision in mind just like great business organizations you put the work in you have the plan like we say in you know combat diving you plan to dive you dive the plan you stick to the plan and if data dictates that you need to adjust you adjust but you maintain focus on the long-term vision while working your ass off every day <laughs> Same thing. definitely the same thing applies to parenting i definitely think it applies to marriage uh which as you know is a full-time job um but yeah no it's uh <laughs> I love that. It's not always perfect. Uh, you know, my two-year-old's been walking around saying WTF, so clearly <laughs> yeah. I need to, uh, work, work, work. he's about to start preschool, so I imagine I'm going to be getting a phone call next week uh, when he says it uh, in class, but <laughs> you know, when, uh, when, when things aren't going perfectly and they never do, you gotta, You got to adjust and get back on track.
0: Yeah, and you, you mentioned the marriage. So, you know, there's all this literature out there and research on uh you want to do your most important work earlier in the day you know especially when your brain's fresh and stuff like that and then my wife approached me a month ago about you know us having some quality time before you know the day got started and the kids got up and work and all that and initially I was like no this is where I can get my deep work done but then once we started doing it I was like, you know maybe this marriage thing is this might be one of the most more important things in my life. Maybe my time should be <laughs> <Yeah>. for that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that's actually that's that's so funny that, that uh, my wife and I had the almost the same conversation. I had kind of the same reaction at first. She's like, "It's like, oh well, you know, this this, this girl Brooke who comes over and, and trains her at her house every now and then. She's like, Oh, I scheduled to come at you know seven o'clock or whatever, and you know, you should work out with us.' I'm like, like, no, 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 I got I, I got to get the day started. I got I got to get to work.' Um, and you know, sometimes. I get to work and other times I, you know, and the times that I've been like, yeah, you know, yeah, let's, let's work out together. It's, it'll be fun. I'll get my workout out of the way. Uh, I, I never regret it because to your point, it's like, yeah, it's like, you know, with work and kids and chaos. You know, you don't have a lot of time for each other. You have to make the time and uh, you have to prioritize that because as you know, if mom and dad aren't good and nobody's good, <laughs> it makes everything harder.
0: It sure does and it's uh so good. And uh I really appreciate the time Brad. I have a couple final questions for you here. So immediately what I'm going to do today is I'm going to I'm going to ask for ask for feedback on on what I can do with with my team and um also maybe figure out a way where I can get it where they can feel comfortable and they can do it anonym- anonymously um without putting them on the spot but uh I got pages and notes yep. here. This is so good. Okay, so uh, a few oh. rapid fire questions at the end here. So uh, answer in one word or one sentence, please. Most I- most interesting person you have ever met in your life. My wife. Good answer.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's the only answer, but
0: <laughs> What personal limits are you currently stretching?
1: Personal limits. Um... I think it's broader than that. I'm always pushing myself. I'm never satisfied with the status quo. Um, and that's, whether that's a flaw or a positive mm-hmm. thing, uh, I'm always pushing um, the goalposts on physical goals, wellness goals, uh, business goals. I know that's a longer answer, but.
0: And biggest life lesson you have learned in the last six months? I think it's probably got to go back to, Marriage. It's about alignment (laughs) and staying aligned and uh, not always wanting to be right. Hear that. And last question this doesn't have to be one word, one sentence, but what piece of advice would you give to an 18 year old who comes from absolutely nothing yet has high ambitions to leave a big impact on the world?
1: The the biggest piece of advice I would give, uh, if, if anybody, especially a young person who comes from nothing, I think that living for a higher cause, for a higher purpose, is the best way to take that first step out of hell, to live a purpose-driven life, to achieve your own personal goals, because you're focused on doing for others. Um, it's, it's And there's actually research that backs it up, that volunteerism is one of the best ways to combat stress, anxiety, depression, because it's about other people. And it's one of the most fulfilling ways to live life. And what I've seen you know, from my own experience, but I've seen others when people prioritize giving back and living for a higher cause. Those are the happiest people uh, in the world.
0: I completely agree. And it's so, uh, when you get wrapped up in your own world, it's so easy to be like, Oh, I don't have time to do that. But then just like you said, it's yeah. like, after you do it, then you feel so much better. And it's just, I think it's just cause it's the right thing to do. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like going to the gym. You never regret helping someone. You never regret mentoring someone. You never regret uh, giving to a cause other than your own selfish desires. Ever.
0: <laughs> awesome. Well, uh, to everyone listening, I highly recommend uh, Brent's book, Taking Point. We will put that in the show notes below. And then, Brent, what's the what's the best way for people to reach out and connect with you? Mm-hmm.
1: Sure. Uh, I'm on, from a social media perspective, I'm on Twitter, you know, at Brent Gleason. Uh, My website, my personal website is BrentGleasonSpeaker.com. The company website is TakingPointLeadership.com. And I have a weekly column on Forbes. Uh, If you just Google Forbes, Brent Gleason, you'll see all my articles and whatnot. But uh, I just want to say thank you so much. It was an honor. It was a pleasure. I feel like we could talk about this stuff all day. Um, And I just wanted to thank you uh, for what you're doing, uh, for giving to these kids, and it's very admirable. And um, I know you probably get as much out of it as they do. So uh, if there's Mm -hmm. anything else I can do to help you in that endeavor, let me know.
0: I appreciate, appreciate you, sir. Thank you. Thanks, brother. So good. I hope you got as much wisdom from that interview as I did. Great human being. Great business professional, a great teacher in the high performance industry. Highly recommend that you purchase Mr. Gleason's book, Taking Point, follow him on social media. And 10,000 Foot View, I think he does a great job of showing us that high performance teams living at high performance, these principles can apply to all areas of our life, whether that's professionally, whether that's what we're doing athletically whether that's the teams that we're coaching or the teams that we're participating on, whether that's our close relationships at home or as a parent, these principles apply in all areas. So good. And I love how it talks about meeting with sports teams across the country and about how it's so much more than wins and losses and so much more than the game itself. And I resonate with that so much when I'm doing at Castlemont. So if you found this interview at all educational or entertaining, hopefully both, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes because that gets more ears to the show, more ears to the show, more help we can give you Castlemont High School and the athletes there. And I will talk to you soon. Thanks again.